How do we respond when our neighbors go missing? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Wednesday, May 3rd. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, South Dakota Attorney General Marty Jackley is with us. We'll talk about missing and murdered Indigenous persons and renewed efforts to respond more effectively. Our Dakota Political Junkies conversation features political scientist Mike Card. We'll scoop up some headlines from across the state and take the political pulse of South Dakota in May. The rabbits may have had their way with your landscaping this winter. Eric Helland joins us in the studio with a recovery plan. Plus, the final volume in the Pioneer Girls series will soon take its place on the shelves. We've got a preview. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Grocery shoppers rejoice. In the past few months, we've seen more reasonable numbers on the price tags next to eggs. The historic price jump for the breakfast staple is hopefully an anomaly. Heather Gessner has the numbers on the supply and demand behind the jump. She's the Livestock Business Management Field Specialist at the South Dakota State University Extension. She's with me now on the phone. Heather, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit of the behind the scenes, where these numbers come from. Where does the data come from? Well, the data that you're seeing is coming from uh, USDA NAS. So that's the United States Department of Agricultural um, National National Agricultural Statistics Service. And they keep track of all the numbers for us that combine production as well as um, the sales across the nation and here in South Dakota. How is it used in the industry? What sort of usefulness does that data have? You know, within the industry, the whole supply and demand chart, you know, how many chickens are laying eggs and how many eggs are being laid kind of plays into that macroeconomic situation of prices. And when the, you know, prices and input costs go up, then for the producer, a lot of times that's reflected and felt by the consumer. And that's where we see some of that increase in the egg prices in the marketplace. All right. How many chickens are laying eggs? Tell us about some of the numbers from 2022. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, some of the eggs uh, or the numbers that we have going on, um, the average number of layers for 2022 was 1.9 million in South Dakota, which sounds like a lot of chickens around, but that's actually down 311,000 from the year before that. So, um, you know, the Highly pathogenic pathogenic avian influenza came through, and it really kind of hit our flocks and our egg-producing flocks really hard in the last couple of years. Yeah. What does that have to do with value? What do we see? How much was lost there? You know, so we had um, a pretty big value change in egg production in South Dakota because since there was fewer of them, and the price went up like everybody was seeing, the Mm -hmm. actual value of South Dakota's ag production went up $59.2 million from a year ago. Interesting. Fewer of them, but they were worth a whole lot more. And I think people would uh, agree with what they were seeing when they paid for breakfast. Right. Reasons behind that, you mentioned, uh, you know, the the flu, um, pandemic ripples still it's hard to say exactly why everything happens the way it does yeah, I suppose. You yeah. know, it's, it's that whole chicken and egg thing which came huh. first <laughs> 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 uh, but you know if you start looking at some of the charts that are available from the different 
agencies that collect all the numbers. The avian flu really kind of hit first in 2015 and decreased the number of eggs being produced across the nation. And then from 2015 to 2019, we had a huge jump in the number of eggs that were produced year, year over year. So that really gave us kind of those lower prices for eggs where it was really easy to include them in different meals and different, you know, anything that you were making and cooking and those types of things. So when we had that huge decline in production again, that's when we felt that change and it really started hitting our pocketbook. Yeah. What's next? What can you tell about the numbers now that would help consumers or producers look to the future? You know, I don't really see a huge change coming. You know, maybe we've seen a little bit of stabilization. Uh, producers are starting to refill barns and kind of getting back into that normal swing of things. We, it's just hard to anticipate w- those shock factors like another case of the avian influenza coming in or some other problem, um, you know, with the whole market chain situation. You know, mm-hmm. and that market chain thing could be anywhere from an increase in fuel prices, increase in corn prices, to having to destock coal barns and start over again. Mm-hmm. Heather Gessner, sorry, Heather Gessner is the... Livestock Business Management Field Specialist at South Dakota State University Extension. We look forward to talking to you in the future. Thanks so much, Heather. You bet. Looking forward to it. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. May is Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Awareness Month. Friday is a National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. We're bringing you a conversation with Lily Mendoza, co-founder of the Red Ribbon Skirt Society, on Friday. But today we're going to talk with Attorney General Marty Jackley about what his office is doing to respond to this issue. Attorney General Jackley, welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Lori. Great to join you. You and I, and uh, before I was here, you and other radio hosts have been talking about uh, trafficking and missing and murdered Indigenous people for a long time, but it does feel like there are new things. For people who are new to the conversation, uh, when you look on the Missing Persons Clearinghouse, about 58% today of those people who are missing are American Indian descent. Why is the disparity so uh, urgent You know, certainly when you look at South Dakota and you look at our number of reservations and you look at the law enforcement resources, I mean, I think that's, you know, part of the explanation for that number. Uh, And fortunately, the South Dakota legislature and the the tribes have been cooperative with this. There's been an emphasis placed on it. And so we now have a dedicated position, uh, some dedicated emphasis, which I think makes this a priority in South Dakota and, and not just a priority Uh, with our Native American partners, but a priority of the state of South Dakota. You've been all over the world thinking about um, and connecting with other attorneys general. Are there regions that have this figured out? Are there responses that work that we can model ourselves after? Are we ahead of the curve in trying to figure something out? Where do you see us fitting in in the global conversation? From what I've seen and with the dedicated positions, I think we're certainly ahead of the curve. I mean, we have this wonderful opportunity where we really have two dedicated positions within the Attorney General's office to focus on the recovery of, you know, 
hopefully saving a live missing person or certainly to focus on some of the older cases we have in South Dakota to bring answers to loved ones uh, and also significantly to bring somebody to justice that has hurt someone that, that is considered a missing person. And so I think we're ahead of the curve. I hope we stay that way. I give a lot of the credit to, again, the South Dakota legislature's willingness to fund this. And then we have the two right people in my mind, Allison and Mary Beth, uh, running these programs and doing an excellent job in bringing stakeholders together, focusing what resources we have. I mean, we have separate, you know, seven separate cases that we have been focusing on the last few months. And next week, we'll be reporting on one of those cases where we've solved what happened in August of 1976, where a male person was found in the Missouri River. Uh, we're able to provide some more details once we've notified family members. But that's an example of what this program is doing, the success of it. And of course, a lot of that success is because of our Native American partners and our local law enforcement. It's the sheriffs, the chiefs, those are the ones that are doing the investigations that are, uh, you know, getting good results. A case from 1976, approaching it today, tell me what new tools you bring to the table to solving a cold case like that. A lot of it is our forensic lab. We have dedicated important resources to a state-of-the-art forensic lab that's under the Attorney General. It's housed on second floor of the AG's office. Of course, as technology has advanced, um, we're able to do more, and this is a perfect example of that where we just didn't have that technology in 1976 to do what we do now with DNA and, and other uh, other opportunities. And so we took this opportunity to do some additional testing, uh, and we were able to positively identify the person and, and to take a closer look, too, to make sure that we don't have any evidence of known foul play. Uh, you know, at this point, it appears to have been an accidental drowning um, we always want to keep an open mind and look at the evidence, but at this juncture, we're able to inform the loved ones of the individual, give them a little more information about what may have happened, uh, and, and really solve that mystery from August 9th, 1976. Let's look at today, because since uh, January of just this year, we have 28 American Indians under the age of 18 going missing. How urgent is the need to respond to those missing persons? It's extremely urgent. And again, you know, when you look at a missing persons, of course, time is of the essence. And, and we look at and we have different tools in our state, whether it be the Amber Alert, the Endangered Person Alert. So we have the different tools and notifications to assist that. Our state does a very good job with that. But we recognize that, number one, time is of the essence. And so as we have a missing persons, especially a juvenile, there's a need to, to act quickly. I, I think South Dakota saw that recently with the incident at the D Dakota Dunes where uh, law enforcement was on top of it, notices were out. Actually, we were looking at an Amber Alert. Unfortunately, we were able to recover the child. Um, so these type cases, there's an, there's an exceptional urgency because of the time involved and the fact that you have a juvenile. That, that, that urgency is felt by law enforcement uh, we have great partners, again, with uh, our tribal partners, our chiefs, our sheriffs. Those are the ones that are in the folks in the field that are going to make the difference. I mean, part of the job of the attorney general is to try to bring the stakeholders together. We did just that on April 11th in Rapid City where we had our tribal partners, 
local law enforcement, talking about what we need to do better, how we can do it better, what resources can be placed at this. But these are important cases, and certainly when it's a juvenile, there's a heightened priority because a juvenile may not be able to act uh, such as an adult, you know, and use certain tools and resources. And so we, we put a high priority on that. When you are listening to some of the input from stakeholders, as you say, you're, you know, you're a calm guy, you've been in court, you've been in uh, lots of high pressure situations, and yet there is a moral imperative, there is an outrage. There are people who have personal lived experiences of not having their stories taken seriously, of not being able to trust law enforcement. What gets you upset? You know, one of the things that, and we're doing a better job of that, we have good relationships, but I always, you know, I always want to focus on law enforcement needs to be working together, not against each other, for purposes of solving these cases. And we sometimes see some jurisdictional boundaries uh, between some of our reservations and state authorities. That upsets me. I want to work with our tribal partners, and they want to work, too, to make sure that those jurisdictional boundaries created by a distant Congress doesn't affect recovery of a child that we're all interested in doing. And so that's the biggest thing, and it's working on those relationships. Why, for me, when I encourage Allison and Mary Beth to go to those stakeholder meetings, make sure our tribal partners know, number one, they're important, number two, we want to work with them, and, and nobody benefits from a jurisdictional boundary when we're, we're looking at either solving a crime, finding a missing, missing Native American juvenile. Um, so that, that's the most important thing. And then the other thing that, all, that becomes challenging are resources. Uh, many of our partners do not have sufficient resources. You know, part of my job as Attorney General is to write those letters, especially in the Native American areas, to Congress to suggest the need for additional resources. Um, I regularly do that when it comes to victim resources, uh, and that's, that's exceptionally important on the human trafficking side where we just need to make sure we're dedicating the proper resources to make sure that you know, a missing person's case doesn't necessarily become a homicide when time is of the essence so that we can put the resources necessary for recovery. Mm. The Missing Persons Clearinghouse is missingpersons.sd.gov. What do you want South Dakotans to know about how they can participate in sharing information, in raising awareness, and in taking action? You know, certainly go to the website, take a look at it. You know, basically, the citizens are one of the best tools we have to gather more information and solve crimes. So the encouragement is to look, look at the website see if you have some valuable information, you know, and certainly share that. Local law enforcement uh, is exceptionally valuable when it comes to running down leads, having information regarding missing persons, and making sure that if you, if you think you have something that would be helpful, share it either with us or your sheriff or your local law enforcement, tribal police, depending upon where you're at. That's all important. But the biggest thing is, is that awareness. Um, I've encouraged Allison and Mary Beth to do trainings. We, they've been in 15 different places since the program started doing trainings. But if, if the public would just take a few minutes, take a look at the website, they might have exceptionally valuable information to save a life or help solve a mystery uh, that is very important. South Dakota Attorney General Marty Jackley, thanks for making time. Thanks, Lori. Always a pleasure to be with you. 
Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. We're going to kick it old school today for our Dakota Political Junkies conversation. We've pulled some headlines from across the state, and our analyst is here to help us contextualize them. Mike Card is a political scientist and professor emeritus at the University of South Dakota, and he's with me in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio. Dr. Card, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I, I trust it wasn't the old style that you chose me to be the, uh, <laughs> the commentator today, but we'll just go with that We anyway. used to do this rapid fire, like, and, and the Rapid City Journal printed this, and the Argus Leader printed this, and then we'd go to the next story, we'd go to the next story, and we kind of go. And we've gotten into this nice, more in-depth stuff. Yep. But today, it feels like there's lots happening um, across the state that we need to catch people up with. Uh, expanded parental leave for state employees. I'm looking at uh, SDPB's reporting from Jordan Rushi talking about uh, the governor and the coming out of this last legislative session, 100% paid time off up to 12 weeks for both births and adoptions. Governor Nome has to feel that this is a big win for her. I think it is. It really fits with one of her stated priorities, which is uh, families first for South Dakota, that it's a great place to raise your, your family. And one of the challenges that we have in the workforce is providing for both child care as well as an extended maternity leave. I can certainly speak from my own family's experience what it was like when maternity leave just didn't really exist in state government. And my wife gave birth to one of our sons and got a call the next day, we need you to handle this particular project. And that kept going through what would have been her unpaid maternity leave. She didn't really get one, and <laughs> and and I think that's that's common in most of South Dakota, and that's why the governor put forward uh, what I thought was an innovative proposal to try to sort of fund a, a pool from which uh, the earnings would be available for uh, grants to private sector. It didn't make it through the legislature. That was a big loss for her, you know, not a big political loss necessarily, but. It's something to keep trying again because it's a good idea if we have the funds available to create the pool from which we can withdraw the earnings from that. It's it. Mike Card says it's a good idea. That doesn't mean it's a good idea, <laughs> but right. it sure seems like a good idea to me. Mothers, fathers, parents of all um, adopted children as yes. well. That including adoptions is a big step too. This is a, a you know a flag planted saying adoption matters. Ad- yeah, adoption matters, birthing matters. Uh, yeah. It, you know, the critics will probably bring up something about America First policies and Caucasians only. But I, I think it, it, as long as we fit it for everybody, those criticisms are a little weak. Yeah. All right. We're going to bounce to mineral claims, and what's happening out in the Black Hills with uh, this idea of withdrawing. This is a little bit complicated because this is about federal land and mining claims have, have skyrocketed. At least Sturbinger's reporting is what I'm referencing to here. And they're encouraging the public to say, tell the Forest Service you want this land withdrawed, withdrawn. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, in and, and it's most of the mining in South Dakota, other than gravel mining, uh, occurs in the Black Hills region. And uh, most of that involves federal land. And... The federal laws are very open to mining and development, and yet the individuals are looking at, well, this is an area, specifically the one that brought this up, is an area surrounding Pactola Lake, which provides Mm -hmm. most of the water supply for Rapid City. And so there's this risk, what are the tailings going to be like, and are we just really risking ourselves? In addition to the environmental damage, 
many of the mining companies, not all, uh, have a habit of uh, exposing the ground and exposing the leachate and not cleaning up after they're done. And they're, they're short-term, let's go in, get the minerals out, and then leave or have this particular corporation declare bankruptcy, and then it becomes a super fun site, and, and it's just a mess. So I, I understand. It, it's also, uh, you know, it, it leads into one of the other stories that, that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll let you do the lead in, and I'll pretend I'm the guest. <laughs> This has to do with uh, Summit Carbon Solutions and, and eminent domain and lawsuits that are saying, hey, we have eminent domain to come onto landowner's property. I'm referencing Argus Leader reporting from Dominic Dausch. Sorry, Dominic, I don't know how to say your last name. That's yeah, my guess. I, I mean, the, the, there is an... South Dakota has a history of what many people call radical politics. It's really populist in the sense that it's fighting against large corporations. If it's left-leaning populism, it fights against large corporations and environmental damage. And that's that's been our history. That We had a well-founded populist movement back in the 19th century that led to the creation of the initiative and referendum mm -hmm. and farmer cooperatives and the like. This particular issue does deal with eminent domain, which is the taking of property rights, certain property rights, because you can split property rights up for public purposes. And I think many people are just looking at, wait, they're a pipeline that's only for private purposes, that they're going to take this carbon move it up into North Dakota where it, the public purpose might be is we're not using petrochemicals to pull petrochemicals out of the ground, but we're also going to store the carbon underground so that we can do an environmentally good thing. But yet part of what's going on is the company seems a little belligerent and and as, as, as this particular article noted, uh, that Mr. Deutsch, douche, I'm sorry, Dausch. I don't know. D-A-U-S-H. Uh, there we go. Noted that, you know, the the copy that he got of the company's paperwork informing him that they were going to try to exercise eminent domain mm -hmm. was at the same time that he had guests on his, on his property from the same company who were trying to talk nice to him to get him to uh, agree to the uh, easements on the land, and that's yeah. that's one of the strips of of eminent domain of the property rights that they were trying to seize. You know, it, it seems a lot like Doppel, the Dakota Access Pipeline, is we're going to do what we're going to do, and we have the right to do this because this is a public conveyance, and yet people are looking at carbon is a public conve uh, conveyance, a carbon pipeline. Yeah. And the method in which they're doing it. And the company says, this is good for the planet. You, you know, go ahead yeah. and oppose an oil pipeline, but don't oppose us because this is an environmental solution for carbon net zero. And we're seeing landowners and citizens and people say, not so fast because it's, um, we still have some questions. <laughs> well, and it, it's, it's not clear. We know that pipelines eventually leak almost, right. uh, it, it, it is a guarantee, it's a you know, our hoses sometimes leak if we're having a lawn. And it's it's a little bit more substantial pipeline than our garden hose, but they all leak. And what does it mean if the carbon leaks? And I, I don't think there are good answers to that that we know about. So then it's a matter of you're just taking my land and I don't know what the consequences are. 
What does it mean if big projects like this are continually blocked by public effort? No pipelines, no mining, no... Storage of uranium no storage, tailings. Right? Like, you know. when, when people get together and say, we, we don't want this, and I think to the no dapple example is an excellent one, people learned from that protest that success can happen, and with the intersection of politics and who goes in the White House and out of the White House, it, it's a whiplash effect. Right. It can be really difficult to get one of these projects off the ground. Well, uh, you know, the... The protest movements are what I would say are populist left. Their more populism is uh, a rage against large corporations over the individual. And so it, they're trying to stop large corporations. Well, we also like economic development in our state, and that usually involves both small businesses and large businesses and corporations. So if we stop corporations from doing things, Will South Dakota get the label as being bad for business? You know, mm. we certainly know that many of our past governors, at least at least starting with Joe Foss in the 1950s, is South Dakota is open for business. Interesting to watch going forward. All right, let's take a, a broader lens too, although that I guess is pretty broad, <laughs> and talk about um, some of the dialogue about China trade and the pressures and uh, information that's coming to people like Congressman Dusty Johnson about agriculture and the balance between who we do business to with, who we have to do business with, who we don't want to do business with, what the governor says, you know, don't do business with, and then the reality on the ground for South Dakota farmers. Well, this is a story of competing values and, and politics constitutes competing values all of the time. In this particular case, it's not so much partisan politics, but it's politics about who gets to decide. When we're looking at the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, you know, they're not the most friendly to America group on the face of the earth. They're quite antagonistic towards us. They're certainly siding with Russia in terms of its authoritarian activities to seize part of Ukraine, a sovereign nation. They're they're hiding as uh, Jose, uh, excuse me, the president of Dakota State, because I can't pronounce her name either. So. Jose <laughs> Murray Griffiths, yeah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, it noted that, you know, they're hiding their businesses that they're buying in America, keeping yeah. the previous name but showing ownership by uh, the government of China, which is an authoritarian government. There is little difference between the state and the government and the politicians and the private corporations. So they're, they're hiding what properties they are buying from us. That certainly is a political activity. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, we, we don't want to do business with them, but they want, you know, they have a claim to Taiwan, which is producing a number of the most sophisticated computer chips available on the earth, and they want to use those for their technical machinery as well as we do. Mm. But if they take over Taiwan, then they will have sole access to those. So we're fighting that particular front. And we can keep going with this because they consume 3% of the milk products, according to the head of, uh, of Valley Cheese up in Mailbank. Uh, Jerry Schmitz, a uh, Vermilion native, who's the executive director of the South Dakota Soybean Council, noted that in, in the COVID days, 
our decision not to play nice in terms of trade with the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government cost South Dakota farmers, on average, soybean farmers, $50,000 in cash. Mm. And we got lucky because Brazil, the other party to whom they could go for large soybean purchases, had a drought, and they had to buy South Dakota and U.S. soybeans. So there's lots of different parties, and yet it's easy to raise money because most of us don't like China. Right now, most of us aren't liking Russia very much either. But with China particularly... It's easy to raise campaign money, but it hurts our own merchants because they work in a worldwide market. Yeah, interesting. Um, one more headline. This one's from the New York Times. Um, I was referencing, referencing Annie Todd's reporting from the Argus Leader on that last bit. So this one's New York Times, and this is immigration. Title 42 is going to expire, so these emergency measures that were during the pandemic. Uh, President Biden doesn't want a surge of migrants coming across the border and then really feeling blamed for it. Meanwhile, Republicans in the House are trying their own attempt at immigration reform, which is very different than how Democrats define immigration reform. And I'm just cringing at the kind of mess that we're going to be talking about all summer long, perhaps. It It is clearly a mess. You know, yet I, I hope that your listeners were were tuning in yesterday as you had a South Dakotan who was down at the border who was describing that these are people facing terrible personal risks in order to try to come to America, the land of opportunity. And yet at the same time, we have a large portion of our population that doesn't want any more immigration. And so we're trying to stop this. But what we'd what we've got is at least a 20-year history of the inability to have an immigration policy that can be agreeable by a majority of Congress. Under President George W. Bush, he proposed an immigration reform bill that he couldn't get through the Congress when both parties were under the control of the Republican Party. The Democratic Party hasn't been able to produce anything. And until we start talking with each other as opposed to at each other, which is what we're doing now, we're not going to have an immigration policy that allows us to bring skilled people in, accept the refugees of the world who, who are seeking opportunity and have lower levels of crime <laughs> than Americans have, <laughs> than, than people who are residents and citizens, and yet bring something to share, and that is largely their labor, because we have a labor shortage in America. Yeah. Refugee is not a synonym for terrorist. It is not. Or criminal. Let's leave it there. That was our rapid fire. <laughs> Dr. Mike Card, a USD professor, emeritus political scientist, it is always a delight to have you in the office and have you help explain things for people who are, are busy listeners and want a quick update and then also provide some insight and analysis. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. You're very kind. Thanks for having me. Let's take a moment now for an Opera House's Encore. Jackie Fuller is a former board member of the Homestake Opera House in Leed. The Opera House opened in 1914. The theater, swimming pool, and other activity areas of the facility changed over the years. And then the Opera House was devastated by fire in 1984. 
It took a decade to begin the serious work of rebuilding and restoring what remained of the Opera House. Fuller led the group that helped bring the building back to life. Take a listen. Best practices for a renovation of a building is you, you do your planning, you do your fundraising, and then you start. And, mm -hmm. and I didn't believe we could do that. I thought we had to show people that we could. There was no floor in the theater. There was no floor on the stage. Uh, this place was a little iffy. And we uh, were able to get Frank Kuchra, who was a wonderful electrician who worked for Homestake and also did private stuff, mm -hmm. crawled out onto our balcony to put lights up to show the angels above the, above the stage so people could see what we did have left. And I think that's really kind of when we were able mm -hmm. to make some good progress. Mm -hmm. Then we got a National Trust grant to do, and we did the ladies' lounge downstairs. We've just, we haven't been stopped, and I think that's pretty amazing. I finally got Governor Bill Janklow through the building. <laughs> he had first given us a small grant, and I said, but I really want you to see the building. And he said, I'm giving you the grant so I don't have to see the building. <laughs> But when I finally got him through it was when they were announced, he was here because of the lab announcements. And I got him to come in and I was giving him a tour and he said, you'll never do it. How much do you need now? How much money do you need now? And I said, what it was. And he said, oh, you'll never do it. We got into the theater. We started looking around and then we got up here and steps were hard for him to do then. Even walking up the street was hard for him. But uh, he got up here and we looked out and he said, now when you're finished with this, <laughs> I don't think you should limit the use. You know that kids who are involved in the arts do better in school? Do you know that adults who are, are seniors who are involved in the arts uh, have less Alzheimer's? He said, you shouldn't limit the use. And then he looked at the man next to him and he said, you should write a check for this. <laughs> <laughs> so he became a, a fan yeah. of what we were doing. And I'll be forever grateful. That was Jackie Fuller, a longtime resident of Leed and a former board member of the Homestake Opera House. Jackie and the restoration story are featured in the Dakota Life episode, Greetings from Leed. The broadcast premiere is on Thursday, May 4th at 8 Central, 7 Mountain on SDPB-TV Channel 1. You are listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, we have all weathered the extremes the winter through our way, but how did your garden and landscaping fare? Eric Helland is with us with a peek at the environmental hurdles your plants may have had to overcome and still have to overcome this spring. Eric is president and owner of the Landscape Garden Centers in Sioux Falls. You can find the South Dakota garden features on our website at sdpb.org. You can find Eric right here in the Kirby Family Studio. Hey, welcome back. Hey, how are you? I always know it's spring when you're back in the studio. That's what the gal outside said, too. <laughs> she said, yeah, hey, well, I'm glad to see you because that means it's spring real. is here. It's yeah. real now. <laughs> and today is an awesome day outside. East Beautiful. River, it's a lovely day outside. Gorgeous. Yes. All right, but... Now that the snow has melted, yes. there are an awful lot of bare branches right around yeah. where the snowbank was and the rabbits had their way with bushes, landscaping. Right. right. 
a little bit of carnage. <laughs> <laughs> um, carnage. So it's so weird because there's so much damage from rabbits and deer that happened this year, and it's usually at the base, you know, because we haven't had yeah. never had that much snow. But we're seeing rabbit damage that's four or five feet tall because the drifts were that high and the yeah. rabbits were hungry and therefore I eat whatever's at my eye level and that's what yep. they ate. Well, that's what people are going to be recognizing and seeing. And our um, basically what we're telling people to do is just hold tight and see what leaves out, what blooms, and then make your adjustments there. Um, and so if you see branches that have been, because they might leaf out and bloom, they might have never um, actually chewed all the way through into the cambium layer, which would then still allow the tree to heal and then allow for um, stuff to go back and forth between the, between the stems and leaves and flowers and stuff. Um, so I have to kind of wait and see. If you're that impatient and you're just saying, no, it just looks hideous, then cut it off and come out and get a new plant, tree, shrub, bush, whatever. And then make sure that we remember this winter because we're going to want to cover up things a little bit better because now we know that, or maybe it was a helpful reminder, is that we can have a good snow. Yeah, a lot of people invested a lot um, last year, and Mm -hmm. that investment is sort of gone (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. There's there's some trees that we took pictures of and saw that were just stripped from four foot up high and then all the way down to the base. Yeah. And, I mean, they're... That's that's called kindling. Okay. Yeah. And and what will happen as the tree? So you look for the leaves, but will mm-hmm. the bark regrow uh, there? Yeah. In some cases, so in some cases the the rabbit didn't rabbit or mice are all, sure. always out there too. Um, if it didn't completely girdle go around the whole tree, um, the tree will um, heal itself and fix itself. Um, it'll take some time. The tree is going to go into some stress because of that. So meaning. When it becomes really warm out again and really dry, it's going to need a little bit more TLC, some more water to be able to sustain. Or the tree might just even shut down different parts of the top of the tree okay. because it can't sustain those, but it can sustain the other parts that are getting the nourishment that it needs through the bark or through the, the trunk. Okay. So is bark mainly protective or does bark transfer nutrients? So um, that's a great question. Uh, you've been reading up on some. No, I just was wondering. Well, you just, uh, so bark, yes, there is the protective. Yes, I mean layer. I have researched this extensively. Yeah. <laughs> uh, page forty-two. Yeah, uh, no, the uh, uh, bark is the protective layer, and underneath the bark is the layers that are actually transferring um, the xylem and phloem going up and down, okay. which basically. That's where you're getting your nutrients. So if you girdle a tree, meaning going completely around, you will kill the tree. But we've seen it to where trees have been three-quarters girdled, and they'll still come back. And then over a period of time, they will callus over that area and re, um, basically grow new bark and then allow cambium layer to be um, grown underneath that bark also. Fascinating. Yeah. Same for lilac bushes and other bushes like that, or is that just trees? Everything. Everything. Everything, yep. Yeah. So perennials are probably the easiest thing because if they got mowed down to the base, they have a root system to go off of, and most perennials come up from just the base, the roots. So that's perfect. There don't No worries there. Um, your, yeah, any of your, we call them the woody shrubs, woody plants, a lot of evergreens got hit. Mm-hmm. Um, Arborvitae were hit. At about the three foot level, and then there's a big end. It looks like they were wearing a turtleneck, and then the turtleneck right. was taken off. Right. And but there's it just took off the foliage, 
it didn't go after the bark. So then you'll have green growing up and then you'll have a gap and then you'll have green. Over time, that will fill in that gap, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be instantaneously. Right. So how long do you watch, wait and see? Unless you are that impatient person. A couple, two, three weeks, some... you'll be able to tell. Okay. And when everything else is leafing out, you sh- your stuff should be leafing out with it. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. What else for the spring now? What What is May time to do? Uh, May is get your garden going. Uh, the yeah. temps look really good, um, which are really going to help that the ground temp. So I would say to really start looking at when you're going to start planting your garden, especially the cooler season plants, mm-hmm. um, vegetables, um, peas and carrots, you know, things like that. And then um, get get it tilled, get everything ready to go because, um, yeah, temps look really good. And if we get some good warm rain, that's going to help warm up the ground too. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's just, it's looking really good. I'm not mowing yet. Don't. Brookings mowing, they're not mowing in May if they okay. don't want to. Yeah. And then they're going to go back for pollinators. And, and of course, okay. my, my yard doesn't need it yet either. Sure. When do you mow? When it starts bugging you? Yep, when it starts okay. bugging you. When, <laughs> mow when you have time. Yeah. I mean, don't make this... Uh, listen, we've all been cooped up for so many months and so many weeks, right? So go out and enjoy it. If you want to mow the front because it's a little bit long and shaggy, then leave the back because it's not quite there yet. Do that. Yeah. But go out and let's make sure that we're enjoying the outdoors because we know what it's like to be stuck inside. Yeah, and my tortoise can come out and play now. There you go. You can have the... What's his name again? Frank? <laughs> No. no, it's not. We call him the entity. Oh, the entity. Okay, so yeah. he uh, sent him out and he could start mowing, but because by the yeah. time... I took him out gets... once when we had those two really hot days yeah. that just kind of came out of nowhere. I took mm. him out and lost him in like five minutes. Oh, I bet. He yeah. went directly to like a hiding place. Oh, okay. So he's got to get used to his uh, his backyard That's habitat right. again. <laughs> Eric Helland with Landscape Garden Centers. You can always send us... Uh, questions for Eric, and we will ask him on the air. It's in the moment at stpb.org. Eric, thanks for stopping by. Happy spring. Yeah, you too. book series on Laura Ingalls Wilder's writing processes, publishing its concluding volume. It's called Pioneer Girl, The Path into Fiction, and it is from South Dakota Historical Society Press. It's available for pre-order now. It's going to hit those bookstores on May 30th. Books editor Nancy Tysted Copel is with me on the phone. Nancy, welcome. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. This has to feel good to see all these beautifully designed books on the shelf in order. How are you feeling today? <laughs> oh, I'm feeling very pleased. It, it's, it turned out really well, and they do look lovely together on the shelf. Yeah, this one is called Pioneer Girl, The Path into Fiction. Tell us the focus of this, thir- of this volume. This book is about um, the progression or transformation of Wilder's um, Wisconsin episode of her autobiography, Pioneer Girl, into the best-selling classic, Little House in the Big Woods. For people who need a little context about how this sort of began, this, the first volume, was a runaway surprise hit, which 
reveal to everyone how much people care about Laura Ingalls Wilder, but also how much, how thirsty they were for knowledge about her process. Take us back to the beginning, please. Yes, this uh, this process began really in 2009 when we began to uh, negotiate with the Little House Heritage Trust to um, publish Laura Ingalls Wilder's autobiography, um, which she had written in 1930 and had tried to publish for a, a number of years, but just did not find an audience. Um, and there's a good reason for that. But in any case, she we negotiated the right to publish this book 80 years after it had originally been written. And we, we proposed to the trust that we would uh, annotate it and create context for it. Um, and so that's what we did. And that came out in 2014. Uh, it was edited by Pamela Smith-Hill. Um, and we it, it, it was a, a, a runaway success. Um, in some ways, I knew that it would be a it would would work well because we had modeled it more or less on the Mark Twain autobiography, which had come out a few years earlier. Um, so and and that had had a surprising success as well, but Laura Ingalls Wilder and Pioneer Girl just uh, left that in the dust, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> we we have since that time published close to two hundred thousand copies. The press has, and um, it has continued to do very very well. Um, but as we were working with that book, we came to realize that there was a lot more that could be said because Pioneer Girl, the um, the autobi- annotated autobiography, is really the source of all of Wild, not all, but seven of Wilder's Little House novels, and two of her daughter Rose Wilder Lane's. Uh, best-selling novels, um, so like yeah, the Hurricane Roar and Freeland. I want to make sure we talk in, in our remaining time here about how this was reframed as children's literature. What can you tell us about that? Well, I, I can. I suppose in many ways it was, as an autobiography, it only covered the first 18 years of Laura Ingalls Wilder's life. So it was set. For, it was about a, a young person um, who, at the end of it, at eighteen, gets married. Um, so it's 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 the subject matter is best framed as children's literature, mm. but it took uh, the two women a while to realize that. <laughs> um, and thank goodness and, that they did. If you're a fan, and, absolutely. <laughs> but this, you know, this, and we have like 30 seconds left. But you know, changing this into fiction allowed her to do things, um, allowed the two women to do things that um, that they couldn't do when they were confined by the genre of of nonfiction. That's exactly right. They were. It freed them up to you know uh, take. Uh, episodes out of context, combine them, yeah. um, and and create a more dramatic and compelling story. Nancy Copel, thank you so much for being here. Congratulations on this. Um, 
to sit back and enjoy how it looks on the shelf <laughs> and, it, and flies off the shelf too as well. <laughs> so, yeah. The book is called Pioneer Girl, The Path into Fiction. It's from South Dakota Historical Society Press and it's the third and the final volume in this series. If you've been following it, we've been talking with Nancy Tysted Copel, the editor, and that is our show for today. We hope that it served you from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Tomorrow on the program, Kevin Wooster is with us. We'll talk about writing, about loss, and how sometimes you might have no words, especially as you get older or as loss accumulates in your life. We'll have that with Kevin tomorrow. Again, from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, we thank you for listening. <laughs>